The Rural Health Voice, Episode 28, Rural Physicians. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What are the ups and downs of being a physician in a rural community? Dr. Sandra Balmoria of the Eastern Shore Rural Health System joined me to discuss why she returned to the Eastern Shore after living and working in Northern Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Balmoria. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, when you were in medical school, you did your rotation with the Eastern Shore Rural Health System, where you currently work. Did you have much exposure to rural communities before that, or was it all new? So I grew up in rural Ohio, so I'm I, my whole childhood was in a rural setting. Um, and then prior to my rotation with Dr. Hollinsworth, I, I was in a group called I2CRP, which is a VCU School of Medicine program for uh, students who are interested in underserved medicine, including rural and urban and international. Um, and so through that program, all of my ambulatory rotations were in rural settings. And so I did some time at the free clinic in Fredericksburg prior to coming to Eastern Shore Rural Health. I um, also spent some time in Tappahannock for my surgery rotation. Um, and so he wasn't, it wasn't my first rural rotation. So day one, you were dedicated to the idea of serving rural communities. Yeah, although I will say that, you know, at the time that I started medical school, we were living in Northern Virginia outside D.C. And so, you know, with family and whatnot, there was some sort of question of whether I would end up actually working in like inner city D.C. versus going to a rural community. And of course, you know, growing up in a rural community and then going back to a rural community is is an adult, a professional, you know, sometimes there's two very different things. You don't Mm -hmm. see stuff when you're a kid. As a medical student in a geographically isolated community, what surprised you the most? What were you not expecting? Um, I think probably the biggest surprise was, so I stayed in the VIMS dorm in Wachapreeg, and I could not believe that I literally could not make a call there. Um, so that was probably my biggest surprise was like, oh, I, at the time my kid was in early elementary, he was like, I don't know, six years old or something like that. And, um, and I, we had, my husband had very thoughtfully uh, gotten me an iPad for Christmas thinking that I could FaceTime with my child while I was away for a month. And there was no hope of that. There wasn't a good enough internet or cell phone connection. I had to like walk a quarter mile down the road to be able to talk to them. I was not expecting that. (laughs) Yes. As someone who lives somewhere where FaceTime is a dream, I fully understand that. So obviously not being able to communicate with your, your family was very difficult. What was the hardest part in terms of, of learning medicine, practicing medicine? Oh, um, you know, I probably spent the first year of medical school thinking that um, they were going to figure out that I really wasn't supposed to be there and say, why did we accept you? <laughs> I was, you know, I was um, almost 30 when I started med school and I had been a Montessori teacher prior to that. And I really, all I had done was gone back and taken a couple of pre-med classes and done some volunteering at a local hospital on a geriatrics program. And I really just felt horrifically underqualified as a history major and preschool teacher to be there with all these kids who had like advanced biochemistry experience and whatnot. And so that, that for me was probably the hardest was like sitting there going, are they going to actually let me stay? Like, do they know what they're doing? <laughs> That's great. 
So there was a while you were in Northern Virginia. What was the thing that got you go back to the Eastern Shore? Um, mostly the tra- honestly the, the traffic and the cost of living. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we had. I, we lived in Reston and the train station had expanded Metro had come out to Reston. And, um, while I was a second year resident, my, my daily commute went from like 15 minutes to like 35 minutes. Um, and I looked at my husband and I was like, I really don't want to do this anymore. You know, we were looking at what we were going to do after residency and, um, he was working all the time. He's a chef and I was working all the time cause I was a resident and, for us to continue to afford to live there, we were both just going to kind of keep working all the time and sitting in traffic all the time. And we just looked at each other and we're like, this is the rat race is really not for us anymore. We're kind of over it. Um, and, and the best part of all of it was our biggest fear was moving our kid, you know, cause he was about to start middle school at the time that we were transitioning and middle school's rough. Right. Um, and it just, it, once we transitioned, we realized that, he had been done with the rap race too. He just, as a kid, didn't have the way to express that. And it was absolutely wonderful for us to transition. And now you're the preceptor for medical residents. What do you feel they need to understand about living and working in rural communities? So I actually just gave a talk to the VCU family medicine folks about rural medicine. And really what I said to them was, my hope is that what they get out of the rotation is that it's not scary to practice rural medicine. I think people have this sort of cowboy image of like you being out there kind of all by yourself in the middle of nowhere and there's no help and there's no resources. And that's just, especially with Eastern Shore Rural Health, just really not the case. Um, you have a huge network of support. Um, you have resources. It's not like we don't have a hospital. Um, and actually, my office has great high-speed internet, and I can totally do teleconferences and video conferences from my office without difficulty and make calls and all of that, right? And so um, that's really – my goal is to take away the sort of um, intimidating aspects of rural medicine to be like, no, really, that you can do this, and it's not – you don't have to be some sort of you know, m- magician to be able to get the work done. Research tells us that students who are from rural communities are more likely to practice in rural communities when they finish their medical training, just like you. You grew up in rural Ohio. Now you're in rural Virginia. So we know that the way to get rural docs is to train rural students. But a study that just came out says that the number of medical students from rural areas is down 28% over the last 15 years and that four times the number of rural medical students that we currently have would be required in the future for these students to be proportional to the rural representation. What do you think needs to be done to address the gap of getting kids from rural communities interested in rural medicine? So I saw that study, I, and I, I agree with it, and I think, um, you know, the rural brain drain is real, and there's this total lack of systemic change to address that. And, and so really, I think what needs to happen is for organizations like ours to stand up and say, we have to do something different to stop the rural brain drain, right? And one aspect of that is what we talked about with, um, like, you not being able to FaceTime, right? Like, part of what our organization has to keep doing is pushing the state and federal legislatures to make sure that rural broadband becomes a thing because millennials aren't going to come work for me if they can't 
make phone calls from their homes, right? I, you know, I mean, if you're going to be a doctor on call, you need to have your cell phone reception be good enough to actually receive and make calls. Um, and you need to have good broadband access wherever you are in your rural community, right? And so that you can access your patient's charts on computers, because that's what everybody does now. Um, and then we need to really advocate for helping these rural kids to get the educations that they need and to get into colleges and do well in them and to, after college, be able to come back and make a living, right? Um, For myself, I spend a lot of time in my, like, adolescent well-child visits talking to kids about, well, what are you going to do when you're done with school? And you want to go to college? Okay, well, what after-school activities are you doing? Oh, none. Have you thought about maybe putting something into your schedule so that you can have some after-school activities to put on your college applications for what you've done besides just go to class, right? Um, And so that's like a huge, like, multifactorial socioeconomic problem, right? I mean, that's, that needs all kinds of problems. It's better after-school transportation for kids. It's getting kids exposed to Uh, careers that require a college degree. It's getting kids free help to get to visit colleges, like all getting better counseling services in the school so that kids get college tracked. I mean, I think when I was at the conference um, with you all just what, a couple of weeks ago, we, there was someone who was talking about how, um, you know, half of kids say they want to go to college, but only like 20% of them are actually in the college track. Um, classes. And it's like, well, if you want to, if you tell your guidance counselor, you want to go to college and you're not in those classes, like, what is that all about? You know? So it's, it's a big problem. And, and it would be lovely if people would do something about it. Yeah. And of course, one of the things we know in Virginia is our area health education centers, which are the essentially pipeline program for our students to encourage them to look at healthcare careers is very underfunded compared to yeah. other states. So Absolutely. That's, that's something that people can think about is how can we support that program and, and make sure that it's properly funded for the sake of our rural communities. Yeah. And it would also be really great if the legislature would put together some sort of package to help us, any rural doctor, any rural healthcare facility to have some sort of structure to figure out like the liability issues and, and the training issues. So if I want to have a high school student come shadow me for a day, that creates all kinds of problems for my administration, right? There's a, a well, you know, what kind of paperwork has to be done? What kind of patient privacy stuff has to be considered? Um, and, and all of that, right? And so the question is, you know, if you're a rural doc in solo practice, you know, you might just kind of say, well, I'm just going to roll with it and hope nothing bad happens. But it'd be really nice if there were some simple online, let's, here's your checklist, print off these forms, have the kids sign them, have them do this online video for, you know, however long it takes. And that will cover you from a liability and a privacy perspective, you know? Sure. We had an entire session at the Rural Health Conference about HIPAA and rural communities because mm-hmm. everybody knows everybody. Exactly. And kids going into healthcare careers need to understand how that works. Right. And how can you have them come hang out with you for a day if they're going to see like six of their grandmas and their kids' friends mm-hmm. and then have to go home and remember that they're not allowed to say anything about any of that? That's hard when right. you're 15 or 16 years old. 
Oh, absolutely. It's it's hard for adults that I know. Right, exactly. And so, you know, like, again, dealing with those sort of everyday issues to sort of help us get through the nuts and bolts of getting these kids on, on a track is is something that would be really great to have help with. Sure. So switching topics a little bit, um, you're taking a lead in addressing migrant health on the Eastern Shore. One thing we know about rural communities is that many of the people working in agriculture and aquaculture move several times during the year to follow the jobs that follow the change in seasons. What are some of the challenges specific to providing health care to a migrant population? Well, I mean, exactly what you said, right? The geography of what they're doing is usually the biggest challenge for us. It's not at all unusual for me to see a patient and have them say to me, well, I'm moving on in two to three weeks. And that's a very short window for me to try to get things done if they have, you know, substantial health issues that need to be addressed. Um, There's a, the Migrant Clinicians Network, which is a sort of national way to track these folks um, where you can register them helps a little bit with that. And I think that they've done a fairly decent job with, um, for example, prenatal stuff, getting uh, getting patients who are pregnant registered in at the MCN. And then uh, that gives us an opportunity to be able to access their data from, you know, Florida or Georgia or wherever they came to us from and see kind of where they're at in the path, right? Um, and so that's very helpful. And it, it's also very helpful that a lot of our um, colleagues down in Florida do actually do a fairly decent job of helping us to access records. You know, when I, when I call one of our federally qualified community health centers down there that works with migrants, they're often able to quickly get me things like vaccine records or whatnot so that we don't have to just sort of duplicate services over and over again. Um, And that's great. I think the biggest problem that we have is that a lot of the facilities and don't, they don't register the patients in the, the migrants clinicians network. And so we have somebody who clearly has a chronic condition and nobody's ever bothered to register them before in spite of the fact that they've been in the migrant stream for years. And you're just sitting there going, why isn't that person registered yet? And so it, it you know, get it, use, utilizing that service more would probably be the b- biggest thing that we could do to help um, elim- decrease some of the problems of having a, a patient who moves from place to place throughout the year. And do they typically have insurance, not have insurance, not... Almost all of the patients that I, well, I shouldn't, the vast majority do not have insurance. Um, now, because we're a federally qualified health center and we've we've done some work with the feds for migrant funding, you know, we do have a funding stream to help address their needs for care. Um, and we have a lot of partners who help us, like, you know, if I have a patient who needs expensive imaging or something, a lot of times we're able to sort of figure out ways to get that taken care of. Um it's interesting on the Eastern shore, we actually have a, a fairly sizable population near my office um, that is mostly U S citizens. They're potato workers and they're mostly an African American population. That's between the ages of like 40 and 65. Um, and so those folks generally are insured, but um, our tomato workers, a lot of those folks are there on um, either H one B or temporary agricultural visas. And so they're typically not insured. Yeah, those two examples also, you know, peel the cover off the stereotype that migrant equals undocumented worker. These are people who are here legally doing the work that we need done, not somebody that's, you know, snuck over the border. 
That's correct. So, you know, the, the, the agricultural work that happens in my area is lo- mostly with very large corporations uh, like Del Monte, um, and they have multi-state operations. So they actually every year work really hard to get people over. And, you know, because of the rules changes for H-1B visas, for example, our tomato workers this year were several weeks late on arrival just because it took forever to get the paperwork done. But yeah, I mean, most of my my migrant workers are generally here legally um, because those large corporations do their paperwork properly. Now, that's not to say that I don't have undocumented folks here, um, but most of them are not my migrant workers. You recently played a major role in discovering and managing a tuberculosis exposure situation. How did all that play out? So this is a really fun story um, from a medical student perspective. I mean, if you were a student, this is like exactly the sort of thing that you'd be like, whoa, I can't believe that. Um, so I, what we do is a couple times every season, we will do migrant health fairs at the larger camps. Um, and so I went to an evening cam- uh, fair at one of the big camps down in Northampton County. And um, the patients were, you know, the usual sort of complaints, a lot of musculoskeletal kind of things and whatnot. And I was there with probably 10 other folks from Eastern Shore Rural Health and uh, the, in the community sort of providing screenings there and whatnot. And then as people kind of come through, if they had any particular concern that requires a doctor or requires a doctor's visit, we would sort of chat and then get them scheduled for a visit in the office if we felt that that was going to help them. And so um, shortly after that visit, that quick fair, right, I do another um, evening session in the office where the we have a, a local organization that helps shuttle patients over from the camp to the office so they can get everything that anyone else would get at a doctor's visit. So we have somebody there to do labs and the nurses are there and we have translation and all that. And so, um, and actually the dental team is there too. And so people who need dental care can get that. So as we're going through this clinic after the fair, the very last patient that I see is this middle-aged gentleman from Mexico who starts talking to me about how he's so worried that he's going to die of tuberculosis because they told him that he was going to get medication and he hasn't gotten his medication yet. And can I help him with that? And I'm a little befuddled by this because that's a strange thing for somebody to say. And so I walk out of the room and I go to my head of outreach and I say, do you, can you tell me anything about this? This gentleman's saying that Everybody in the camp is worried they're going to die of tuberculosis and they were supposed to get medicine and they didn't get medicine. And she says, oh, yeah, they've been really worried about this. She's like, I've been calling down to the health department in Georgia and I've been trying to get up with their supervisor down there and try to figure out like what the situation is. And I can't get anybody to tell me anything. And I'm, you know, I I don't know what to do. And so I went, again, this was my last patient of of the night. And so I went home and and by the time I got home, it was probably like 10 o'clock at night. And I shoot this email to my um, medical director to say, I really do not want to be the person who um, causes there to be a massive outbreak of tuberculosis on the Eastern shore. And I really need your help on this. I'm like, I can call the health department in Georgia if you want. 
but like we need to figure out what's going on because like at this point I'm afraid that there's like literally active tuberculosis in this camp and and we don't know what's going on and um, pulled up like relevant sections of the MMWR for tuberculosis um, outbreaks and kind of what the definition of an outbreak is and what you're supposed to do when you think there may be one and all this. And I'm trying and, and it was just absolutely terrifying, right? Because at this point, I'm just like, what is going on? And um, and get a little bit more information. And this gentleman is telling me, well, there was this person in the camp who was coughing up blood and was super sick, and they took him away, and they never saw him again. And then they took them out of the hospital and got x-rays and did these tests. And and he shows me his arm and he's got a clearly positive PPD on his arm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, again, I'm just sort of like, I don't know what's going on and this is concerning. And and then, you know, my outreach folks are like, yeah, there were probably, you know, there were several people who had positive PPDs that they were showing us, like when we were at the camp, just started talking to people. And, um and so anyway, fortunately, my medical director is a wonderful person who's very quick on his feet. And he immediately the next morning got on the phone with the health department in Georgia and did whatever he needed to do. But, you know, we had a, a, we had a complete set of documentation for all the folks who were at the camp who then migrated to Virginia um, with their PPD results and their chest X-ray results. And we had the Virginia Department of Health involved that day. Um, so the very next day after this sort of nine o'clock at night encounter, um, setting up, uh, a, t- a joint, uh, tuberculosis clinic essentially. So, you know, when you have a potential tuberculosis exposure, you have to take this long personal history to try to figure out how exposed each person was, um, and get, you know, more, all kinds of information from everybody, right? And then everybody who had a positive PPD and a negative chest x-ray was eligible for latent TB treatment. And of course, to do that, they need blood work and such. And so we basically created this assembly line, sort of disaster response where, you know, everybody was, was screened, everybody was interviewed, everybody who needed latent TB treatment, got their first prescription that night, and got their labs drawn. And, Um, and then followed up by the Virginia Department of Health and everybody got registered in the Migrant Clinicians Network database for tracking to make sure that they continued to get their latent TB treatment once they left us. And so it turned out that nobody who was, um, who migrated up to Virginia and had active TB, there was an active TB case in Georgia, which again was the story of the person who was coughing up blood. Um, and that patient was, did not migrate up. Obviously they were quarantined in Georgia at the time that they migrated. Um, and so it all turned out fine, but at the time it was just like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And that's again, a really good example of like communication being so important with these migratory patients, because like if the Georgia department of health had just contacted the Virginia department of health and said, Hey, we had this happen. They're coming your way. Here's what we know so far. It would have been so much easier, you know? Wow. That's, that's a potentially very scary situation. Yeah. And if, if you read in the sort of big reports that CDC puts out about tuberculosis in the United States, they very clearly state in their reports that our tuberculosis reporting system and our way of managing this is very underfunded and it's very dangerous. And this, and we absolutely could have a, have a resurgence of tuberculosis in the United States because we are under-resourced in public health to deal with these things. And, and I think that is, this is a perfect example of, of how that is true, right? 
I mean, if we had a better reporting system and better funding to deal with these things, that would not have happened, right? But it, we were really not set up for it in the United States. Mm -hmm. Wow. Something to think about. Absolutely. So moving from more acute care situations to prevention situations, tell me about Walk with a Dog. Sure. Um, so Walk with a Dog is a national organization. It's a nonprofit um, group that was started by a cardiologist in Ohio, actually, which is where I'm originally from, um, because he realized that a lot of his patients never exercise at all. And he also realizes as a cardiologist that one of the major reasons he has to take care of patients is because they don't exercise at all. Um, and so one day he said to one of his patients, hey, I'm going to take my family for a walk in the park on Sunday. You want to just come? And, um, and to his surprise, the patient said yes and actually showed up. Hey. Yeah. And um, he, he – this sort of turned into this group that essentially helps um, other doctors or, you know, medical providers who are interested in helping their patients to get out and do things. It helps with the liability waivers and all of the sort of nuts and bolts that you have to think about whenever you as a physician are going to do something, right? Um, and so – I had a medical student who was interested in this and she actually attended a couple of walks in Richmond to sort of see what it was like and um, wanted to do this as sort of her senior capstone project. And so um, the two of us worked with my uh, corporate administrative folks to sort of figure out how we would start it and get all the paperwork done and all of that. And then we walk every Sunday at four o'clock um, in Onancock and anyone who wants to come can come. And if they're new, they sign a little waiver that says they're not going to sue Eastern Shore Rural Health if they fall down or something. Um, and we go for a walk and we walk for a little over a mile and we keep a fairly relaxed pace so that we don't, you know, anyone who wants to come can come. And um, before each walk I do, or whoever's leading the walk does a short talk about something related to health. Um, and so, you know, I've talked about flu vaccines and, um, how to eat healthy and things like that. So this is above and beyond your regular medical practice. True. Yes. It is certainly not required for, for my job description. So it's my understanding that in addition to everything that you do as a medical provider, you're also very active in the community, church, service organizations, music groups, how do you make all of that work out? So I tell folks I have a lot of help and that's how I make it work out. <laughs> um, when I decided to go to medical school, my mother moved in with us because at the time my kid was in preschool um, and there was just not enough, there weren't enough hours in the day. Um, and so because we have three adults in my home, I'm a little bit more able to sort of do more because some of the everyday stuff, like getting dinner on the table and whatnot, I don't really necessarily have to do. So for folks who want to be really active in the community, I encourage them to have extra adults in their home. <laughs> Easy solution. Person number three. Yeah. Or four or five, whatever. Sure. It takes a village. So mm -hmm. do you think it's easier to be involved in the community when you're in a small town? I do. Well, I think what's really great about rural life is 
um, like, like we said, everybody knows everybody else to some extent. You have like one degree of separation from pretty much everybody on the shore. Um, so I think that there's a sort of stronger sense of the importance of that compared to when we were living in more urban areas where, um, you do have the advantage of being super anonymous, you know, um, in an urban area where you can do an activity like walk with a dock and you might have a completely different group of people every single time and nobody ever really gets to know anybody else. But that's a very different experience from, you know, really having a set of, you know, people who all know each other and kind of understand the ins and outs of, of uh, each other's daily lives. I think that's something that's super unique to rule that is underestimated as a, as a force for good. So circling back to our early conversation, thinking about getting students interested in, in medicine, rural communities, if students are considering a career in rural medicine, what advice would you give them? What steps could they take to make an informed decision? So I, I tell folks who are interested in rural medicine that they should actually spend some time in a rural community if they have not yet. Right. Um, so if there's, if it is somebody who did not grow up rural or has no rural life experience at all, it's good for them to spend a little time someplace rural, even if it's not in a healthcare related, um, way at all. Right. Like even if they just went camping or something in a rural community for a while, um, that would be helpful, right? Like you should know what you're getting into. Um, I, I feel like a lot of it is just being adaptable, right? to not, to, to be okay with, cause it depends on their situation, right? A lot of the folks I talk to are interested in rural have already a specific community in mind and that's super easy, right? Like they already know where they're, they're going to work and they know the community. And so a lot of the sort of everyday barriers that people face when they're new to a rural community, they, they've already kind of got an understanding of what that looks like for folks who are interested in rural, but don't have a specific community in mind. They have to figure out some sort of way to to know what they're getting into before they join that community, um, and and that just means spending some time with them to kind of figure it out, right? So um, we re- recently have hired a couple of folks from outside the community, and I, what I tell them is make sure that when you're looking for a house that you find out what the internet situation is for real. Like, don't just let the real estate agent tell you there's internet. Um, like really like, you know, I, I encourage them to get up with our, um, IT head and have them check into it and make sure that the internet is legitimately available if that matters to them. Um, Oh, where was that advice when I bought my house? (laughs) Right. And so just really simple things that you don't necessarily think about. Um, again, if you've lived in urban areas, just simple things like that, like just make sure that you really, know what you're getting into. And if you really do want to live in the cabin in the woods that has no internet whatsoever and you can barely get a cell phone signal, signal, well, that's great. Just know that that's what you're getting when you get there, right? And if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? That's, there's such a long list of things I want. How am I supposed <laughs> to choose just one? Uh-huh. We'll, we'll give you two. Let's say, well, you'll have two. <laughs> I, you know, I guess for me, I really, to me, rural health, this, the social aspect of it, that's just the most devastating is this, um, this rural urban divide that exists in how we function. 
um, and our total failure to address the fact that we have a system that's not optimized for the differences um, or to try to, I don't know, even out the differences a little bit, right? And so that rural brain drain is, is at the forefront of that. And so is our rural transportation problem. Um, so for, for my patients, a lot of them, their biggest barrier to care is transportation. Um, so they have a situation where they really do need that, you know, super specialized academic medicine team because they have a brain tumor or because they have some other like super rare, difficult to manage condition. And, you know, I mean, my, my pediatric colleagues and I joke that it would be really fun to have like just a bus that shows up every day at each of our centers to pick up families early in the morning and take them all to the children's hospital, which is from my office about 120 miles away. And on the bus, there would be like, you know, Disney movies playing all the way there and, um, you know, snacks and whatever else needed to happen and have it all be like super handicapped accessible so that all of our super duper special needs kiddos could basically go on a field trip to go see their specialist and spend the day and get a picnic and then come home together on the bus at the end of the day, rather than this extraordinarily difficult situation that we have of parents, like just trying to get their kids specialty care and just like, some way to navigate all of the time that those kids miss from school just so that they can go see their five specialists because they have cerebral palsy or whatever their problem is. You know, I mean, it's just it, that kind of thing is extremely challenging for rural populations. And I don't think that we should be trying to overcome that with something as like incomplete as telemedicine or, you know, trying to somehow get specialists up to me. That doesn't make sense either. I think those big academic centers are often the very best thing for certain patients with terrible conditions. We just don't have a system that's developed to sort of help those people at all. And it's frustrating because a lot of those kids, what ends up happening and adults too, for that matter, they end up getting inadequate care because they're like, I just can't do it. Right. Well, thanks doc. Sure. That's Dr. Balmoria advocating for improved access to transportation. She was the winner of the Virginia Rural Health Association Charles Crowder Jr. Award. This award is given annually by the Virginia Rural Health Association to recognize outstanding individual commitment and service to the advancement of rural health in Virginia. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join us. Visit vrha.org and click the membership tab. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.